I will let Virginia experiment on me for free tuition. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Old prestigious schools, gifted students, secret societies, money and power, indulgence and chaos, references to mythology, forbidden knowledge. These were the ingredients chosen to create the perfect little genre. But Donna Tart accidentally added an extra ingredient to the concoction, chemical X, a.k.a. murder. Thus, the Powerpuff Girls, wait, I mean, Dark Academia, was born. So fall is, is here. It's on the horizon. It's coming. And with the little ones going back to school, it's time for us to go back to school as well. These schools might look a little different than the ones you're used to, unless you went to a prestigious boarding school or university, in which case it's just another Friday. But I'm here with my book friends, and we are going to explore some of what dark academia has to offer. So I think we will start it off this week with Mark. So this week, I'll be talking about the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections by Ava Jerzyk. So Ava Jerzyk is a actually a professionally trained librarian who has worked in libraries with rare books, archives, and similar collections to the ones that are talked about in this book. And she first got experience working in this environment as part of a student one-year project, sort of like a student position at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library at the University of Toronto. She's still at the University of Toronto now at the Robarts Research Library, working in humanities collections. And this experience working in libraries with sort of these rare collections, these sort of manuscripts and medieval and earlier works definitely influenced the way she sort of structured this novel. And some people have sort of speculated that some of the characters in the book may be based on real people. She sort of said the reality has sort of been restricted to small little details of the character traits, like a colleague who still uses a disc man to listen to music at work rather than using smartphone or Spotify or whatever, or the particular librarian's sort of semi-vain way of dressing is sort of the main crux of what she's borrowed from her professional experience. None of the people she's met have been so, um, let's say, out there as the people that are in this particular book. So in this book, it takes place at an unnamed university library branch that not surprisingly is the branch for rare books and special collections. The university is located in the greater Toronto area, but again, in order to not make this about a particular person or place, this university remains nameless throughout the book. At the start of the book, we are introduced to Liesl Weiss, who was on a much-deserved year-long sabbatical when she's called back to work to fill in for Christopher Wolfe, the library's director, after he suffers a stroke and is hospitalized in a coma. Quickly, Liesl is pressed into service by the university's president to scramble together a special showing of the library's most recent rare acquisition, which is the Plantin Polyglot Bible, which is an actual real Bible volume series that is in multiple languages from the 16th century. And I 
gather that is a very, very valuable Bible in the history of philology and theology and various other fields of study. She's been tasked to show off this to the sort of haughty old money and puffed up self-absorbed donors whose money helped acquire this rare book volume. The only problem is that no one knows the combination to the safe that the Bible volumes are being kept in. Since Christopher was never one to worry over details like informing others of padlock codes and when it's changed or, you know, worrying about keeping people up to date on things like that. So having failed to retrieve the book from the safe, Liesl is forced into a sort of passive aggressive grilling and applies the donors with more alcohol than normal in order to try and smooth things over and showing another rare sort of manuscript from the collections in order to try and smooth things over with them. After reaching out to Christopher's wife, Liesl is able to retrieve the safe's code because, again, Christopher shares the information with his wife, but not his actual colleagues who need to be using the code. But once she opens the safe, she's shocked to find that the safe is actually empty and that these rare volumes are now, in fact, gone with no one knowing where they are. In addition to having to cover for Christopher, Liesl now has to recover these invaluable books and has the unenviable task of trying to manage the many personalities in the library, academic departments, university administration, and the aforementioned donors. Among these personalities are her fellow librarians, Francis, Max, and Miriam, all of whom harbor suspicions and old resentments towards one another for both professional and personal reasons. There are the demanding scholars, all of whom repeat the same mantra of how unique and special their research is, how important it is, how they need to make these special accommodations for them that they won't do for anyone else because of their special important research. Foremost among these scholars is Rhonda Washington, a former librarian turned mathematician who wants to perform carbon dating on the immensely rare and equally fragile Peshawar manuscript in the library's collection. Because this manuscript is believed to be the first time that the symbol for zero was ever used in writing. But the exact date on this manuscript has always remained somewhat vague. So that's why Rhonda has this interest in sort of using a scientific method for carbon dating to determine the actual date of it to see if it's actually the first use of the symbol zero or if it's actually from a different time period than originally believed. There's also the university president, Lawrence Garber. As the president of the university, his focus is first and foremost on protecting the university's reputation and maintaining a rosy relationship with wealthy donors and alumni. And nothing worries him more than fallout from a high-profile theft becoming public knowledge or the loss of rare objects that donors have given towards and helped fundraise money for. And because of this, he forbids Liesl from reporting the theft to the police or notifying anyone else of the potential for further thefts. So essentially, Liesl is forced to, to try and become like kind of an amateur detective to sleuth out her staff and the surrounding environments for potential thieves and how the rare book managed to get out of the library to begin with. There's, of course, also the donors that I mentioned before, but there's one particular special donor named Percy Pickens who plays a bit of a role in the story because Percy is the kind of donor that loves to have his name put on things to be seen, to be thanked, acknowledged for the vast amounts of his resource extraction wealth that he's given and shared with the university in order for the university to expand and collect all these sort of rare and special objects. It's this sort of assortment of personalities, issues, and competing priorities that Liesl has to balance while also trying to stay true to what she believes in, what's best for the library, how to best go about retrieving the stolen plantain. There's also a clear development in the book about workplace culture and how the different 
personalities within it can sort of conflict and sort of turn into like a kind of toxic and borderline dysfunctional kind of combination of people because there's a constant tension sliding undermining blame giving credit taking and a myriad of other damaging behaviors that are pervasive and often sort of undercut one another as they sort of squabble over the details of certain things without being able to come together and agree on something. It also shows how this may impact a person's mental health and sense of well-being as we sort of see through Liesl's inner thoughts and dialogue, how the deteriorating productivity of the library and this conflict is sort of affecting her own sense of self, as well as another librarian, Miriam. Many of her personal issues sort of come to the forefront as well in the story that show how mental health can become tied to the workplace and tied to someone's personal life. It's sort of in this kind of situation that Liesl finds herself as she tries to find a way to retrieve the Bible, work through these kinds of relationships and make sure everyone's all happy and rosy at the end of the day and no one's going to cut off funding to the university. So if you like a workplace mystery, discussions of old rare books, book history, or have ever wanted to sort of get an idea of what the inner workings of a rare books and special collections library can be like at a major university, then you may oh also like I can the see why of she rare books and consistently was like, this is not reflective of UFT. <laughs> and this is absolutely not what it's like to work there. <laughs> because after hearing that, I would be also very concerned maybe that someone was going to come after me for for my job or something like that. But also, it's kind of funny how much of that just does sound like a lot of universities. Anyway, so thanks for bringing us that bookmark because I think that's a lot of fun. And I think that also shows that dark academia as a genre doesn't necessarily have to stop at the students. It, it could be about the teachers. It could be about other staff that might work at like an academic institution, like a university or even just sort of be researchers or scholars, because I think the, the point is the world of academia. And so in most cases, I think that ends up being the students or at least a combination of the students and the teachers, just because uh, as a student, you're meant to be learning anyway. And usually you're unraveling some sort of mystery. But yeah, it can really take almost any form as long as it's connected to that age old academia for better or for worse. I think with that, I'm going to move us over to Fiona. What do you have for us, Fiona? I am buzzing with excitement about my book. I just finished it this morning and I am ready to get on to the sequel, even though it has not been published yet. I read Ninth House by Lee Berdugo. So shout out to Sadie. This is... Lee Bardugo's adult debut. Usually she writes YA, but it is definitely in the genre of new adult. And it definitely brought that new adult. If you are an older person who loves to read YA, I will definitely recommend Lee Bardugo's Ninth House. This is a book about magic and, yes, naturally, the dark side of the Ivy League school. It takes place at Yale, and the audiobook actually has a wonderful bonus material, an interview with Lee Bardugo, who actually attended Yale. So that was very interesting. I, it made me think a little bit when you said, like, oh, yeah, I can see why she wanted to separate this from U of T. I was, like, wondering how she managed to get away with with all of these things that she said and then made them so specific to Yale. The Ninth House is about Leafy. 
it is the ninth house. The preceding houses are all uh, magical secret societies at Yale. But here's the thing. They really do exist at Yale. <laughs> Presumably, they're not like, you know, summoning demons and stuff like that. I'm Who knows? But uh, they do exist. All of these societies, manuscript, wolf, wolf's head, are real societies at Yale with these giant mausoleums. Um, so that was pretty interesting to learn. But in the book, Leafy is actually the ninth house created to monitor these eight magical houses. Because they they have so much power, Leafy is created to sort of make sure that magic is being used responsibly. Of course, we'll see as the book goes on that things don't always go as planned. There is a lot of power at play uh, to be used and manipulated, and money is always a good incentive for someone to go against the grain. Our book's main character is Alex aka Galaxy Stern. Yeah, she uh, has a hippie mom who named her Galaxy. And guess what? She sees dead people. But in this world, they are called greys. Alex has been seeing greys since before she can remember and has had some very negative interactions in which they actually push through the barriers and are able to interact with her physically. So she sort of lives her life in fear uh, of these ghosts that she can see. She has one particularly upsetting experience that basically plunges her life into a life of drugs and crime. And after a culminating um, experience in which all of her friends die, she wakes up in the hospital with a delegate from Yale who tells her they know she can see dead people and they want to recruit her. It's an opportunity for her to turn her life around, and there is a big dollar value on it. So Alex decides that she will take this opportunity, and she becomes Leafy's Dante of the Year. That means she is the mentee to her mentor, Darlington, who is the golden boy of Leafy. And he harbors some resentment against Alex because he was excited to choose the perfect protege. But here she comes, a troubled child who just happens to have the ability to see ghosts, which is greatly sought after. So he reluctantly takes her on as his mentee. We do get two perspectives. Uh, we see Alex in the present day, and we also see Darlington in the past. So we know from uh, the present-day perspective that at some point, Darlington has gone missing. On top of that, a town girl shows up murdered. And Alex knows that it is her job to find out if this murder is at all related to the houses. Despite being discouraged from looking further into it, she continues to press on, much to the dissatisfaction of the cop who has been roped into working with these houses. He's one of my favorite characters. He actually is like pretty cut and dry, like stereotypical, like hard-boiled cop. But their dynamic is actually like really a lot of fun. And he's very like doesn't want anything to do with magic. So it's a lot of fun when she's like, guess what? There's like a ghost behind you. And he's like, ah, shut up. So I do. I hope that he shows up uh, in the in the future volumes. 
the mystery itself is is actually a lot of fun and I found myself really getting pulled into it. This for me was a quick read, one that I was really excited to pick up um, again and again. It definitely has its issues and and I and I certainly have some critiques of it. For me, there was a lot of gratuitous sexual violence against women that I felt was kind of unnecessary. And there was some like characterization issues. I found like Alex is really more of a catalyst than she actually is a character. But uh, there were enough likable secondary characters that um, I really found it compelling. There is a bit of a central love story, but just for people who are averse to that, it never really materializes on the page. So that was that was quite satisfying to me because I was like, oh, no, is this like this longing going to take up um, our entire focus? Uh, but it really never becomes central. In the end, I really was rooting for Alex, despite her sort of uh, lack of characterization and her like general like I'm so brokenness. I also felt that Bardugo did a really great job of uh, drawing attention to class issues and and occasionally race issues as well in uh, academia. So um, I appreciated that a lot because we certainly know with dark academia that a lot of it is often centralizing that privilege. Um, but she did a great job of then giving us like a foil to that, bringing in Alex as someone who had struggled throughout her life and, and comparing that to the privileges of uh, the people at Yale and in these societies who essentially were just playing with magic and, and really taking that for granted. So there's a lot of dark rituals it's quite violent and, you know, occasionally characters may um, wander into the afterlife and have a look at what that is like. So it was fun. It felt fresh to me. I'm more interested than in uh, Ivy League secret societies than I have been in the past. And like I said, I'm very much looking forward to the follow-up because it does kind of leave you on a cliffhanger. So I sort of get this feeling that like uh, we talked a lot about um, the Raven Boys last week, and I get the feeling um, that if you like that kind of book, you will definitely enjoy uh, Ninth House. It's very plot driven and exciting. It brings in cool elements for you to to unravel, but there are certainly some frustrations with characters and and occasionally with writing. Overall, it didn't ruin it for me, though. Very much a compelling read. And I'm going to totally pick up more Lee Bardugo because as of yet, I have only watched the Shadow and Bone series. So, you know, I've got a lot there. I know, I know, gasp. <gasps> so thank you uh, for introducing us to this subgenre, Gabriel. Um, I think I will definitely be looking into some the more main characters dark in Galaxy in and future. Darlington. Wild names. Absolutely wild names. Uh, Galaxy does sound like something that would be kind of fun to like almost pick out for yourself but maybe not if like your parents gave that to you and you, you're just sort of saddled that with that for the rest of your life and dark academia i think often is a genre that's like very prevalent when it comes to talking about class issues because it's almost a trope in a lot of books to have the main character be someone who isn't used to the world that they're walking into whether that be blue in the raven boys whether that be whether that be alex in this world, or even again, like if we talk about one of like the OGs, if we go back to the secret history, uh, Richard, the main character, is also supposed to have 
been there on a scholarship. <laughs> it's one of those ones where you're just like, this doesn't quite make sense, but he is not supposed to be of that world. And I think um, I had forgotten to mention it when we were talking about the Raven boys, but it almost feels like that's the kind of perfect series that you can only enjoy if you were really into Orin High School host club as a child. I'm just putting it out there. As someone who enjoyed Orin High School Host Club, I'm like, yeah, they're insufferable. And there's sort of questionable ethics around a lot of the stuff they do. But also some wacky hijinks, some fun times. Maybe it's a little darker. Maybe it's a little bit more Western. But, uh, you know, at its core, would Tamaki not look for a, like a dead Welsh king? I love him, so I'm not sure what you're talking about. But also, is there uh like is there an opposition to dark academia, which is just like I don't know, light what? academia? So it is it as just with a lot of these weird subgenres? It's also a fashion style. There is a light academia fashion style and a dark academia fashion style. But in terms of literature, I would assume light academia is probably heavier on the uh Let's say, can we say elements of Catholicism that sometimes come into boarding schools and also potentially just ignores all of the things that dark academia is supposed to be critiquing about these places <laughs> because I don't know what the other option is. So if there is a, a light academia, that there's something more to it than just not dark academia because then I don't see what the point is just maybe blind positive academia would be like a better word i think so with that note i think we're gonna see what virginia has for us definitely no light academia here for you i can assure you that for today the book that i have to got for you today is one of my most anticipated books for 2022 it's one that I've saved for this episode to talk about, been waiting to read it. And uh, it's from an author that I am absolutely in awe with. I'm, of course, talking about R.F. Kuang, author of the Poppy War series, which you mentioned on this show a couple of times. A brutal military fantasy that you would have think came from the mind of someone with years of experience. But no, that was her debut series. And she is now on her fourth book. This is her fourth book. Very different, but equally immersive. And all the while, she is studying and doing her master's degree at Cambridge and then at Oxford. And now she's doing her PhD in the States. Like, Arif Khan, where did you find the time to do all of that at the same time? It's just, it, I'm just floored by just the sheer amount of talent, but also the discipline and the hard work that I'm sure she has to put into doing all of that at the same time. So respect. And I feel like she, not just the book, but also she herself totally, truly embodies the idea of an academic. The latest book that she's got just came out this week is Babel or the Necessity of Violence and a Cain History of the Oxford's Translator's Revolution. I mean, how academia is that title? Even just that in itself. This is a story of Robin Swift. Robin Swift is very, very lucky indeed. That morning, he thought he was going to die. He's caught the plague, just like most of the people in his coastal town in the province of Canton in China. And he watches his family die one by one. 
And this morning, his mother was dead. And lying next to her, Robin knows it is going to be his turn next. There was a knock on the door, but he was too tired to get up. He heard the door open, and a white man that he has never seen before came inside. The man walked up to him, took out a bar of silver, and he put that on Robin's forehead. And the white man whispered two words, one in Chinese and then another in English. And then suddenly Robin feels this sweetness in his mouth, like, like dates. And then he lost consciousness. When he woke up, he felt fine. He felt strength has come back to him. And the white man told him that his name is Professor Lavelle and Robin is cured. But not only that, the professor is going to offer Robin a chance to start a new life in London. He will take Robin as his ward and together they're going to travel to London. And there, all Robin has to do is to promise that he will devote every ounce of him to his studies of a curriculum of the professor's choice. Robin doesn't know why he's chosen, but he knows he is so, so lucky that Professor Lavelle chose him. Out of all the Chinese boys that he could have picked, he chose him. In London, he spent six years studying, just like Professor Lavelle said. And he had private tutors that came in to teach him ancient Greek, Latin, and to keep up with his Mandarin. And then one day after six years of studies, he was told he has been admitted to the University of Oxford. One of the four students, only four students, that has been admitted to the Royal Institute of Translation. Oxford is everything that Robin dreams of. It doesn't matter whether there's like grueling work, that there's impossible demands and expectations of the professors. It doesn't matter that he spends night after night toiling over their translation assignments. He loves the life as an Oxford scholar. He loves the fact that he's surrounded by people with the same thirst for knowledge just as him. He loves that everyone has the same passion for languages. But it doesn't take long for other students at Oxford to tell him and his fellow first years that they don't belong. And that might be why the four of them bonded so quickly together. The Royal Institute of Translation, more commonly known as Babel, which is aptly named after the building that the department is located in, is the only department that takes in foreign students, that takes in students of color. For obvious reasons, because at the Royal Institute of Translation, they need students who can speak other languages fluently. So along with Robin, we have Rami, a East Indian boy from Calcutta, a Black girl named Victoria, who came from France, and Letty, a daughter of an admiral, the only white girl in the group. But being a girl, still not right, and still doesn't fit what an Oxford scholar should be. And perhaps out of necessity, these four move as a group. 
Robin can sometimes pass as white, but Remy, with his brown skin, everybody knows that he does not belong. So often he would not be allowed to go into places unless he's with the others. The girls, well, nobody thinks that they are real students and nobody believes that they are real students because they are girls. They must be the maids of Robin and Remy. And so again, they are often not allowed to go to places unless they are all together. But despite all of that, it doesn't matter because the four of them would not trade their lives in Oxford for anything else. And being part of the Royal Institute of Translation probably helped because the institute is held in high esteem. And you might think that, oh, well, that's just a department of students. They're pouring over books, arguing about grammar and or the correct way to translate a word. No, no. The Royal Institute of Translation is the most powerful institution at Oxford because they are the ones who supply and control all the silver that is used by the British Empire. You see, in Arab Kwan's world, the British uses silver and on the, each of the silver bar is transcribed words on there in two languages usually. And what the silver can capture is that magic that is the nuance that is sort of lost in translation. When you try to translate a word from one language into in another, there's often like not the perfect translation. There's always something, something, some part of the meaning that cannot really be translated. And that is where the power is. And the silver can capture that power and use it to run trains, to light lamps, um, to do all the things that the British Empire needs. And the only people that can do that and can, that can empower these silver bars is the students and the teachers and the professors at the Royal Institute of Translation. So despite the fact that the four of them are students of color, that they are despised by the other students, they kind of have to be tolerated because of that. One night, Robin was walking home and he saw three people in black, thinking that, oh no, like I don't want to be harassed by other students because they think that a Chinese boy shouldn't wear a black Oxford gown. He tried to like hurry by, but then he saw one of the figures and this boy looks exactly like him. It's like looking into a mirror. And when the person saw Robin looking, he said, please help, help us. Robin couldn't resist because he wants to know, like, who are you? Why do you look like me? And so he walked closer and he see that the people there were trying to pick this stuff up that they have fallen out of their bags. And there on the floor is silver bars, silver bars that Robin recognized can only be found at the Institute. Thieves, Robin thought, they stole from the institute. And his doppelganger asked again, please, please help. I, I need you to say these words. I'm not strong enough to do so. And he pointed at the words that inscribed on one of the bar that the man was holding. Robin reads the words out loud and suddenly everything surrounding them changes. And Robin knows, just like the words that he has uttered, they have turned invisible. The three people quickly gathered everything and started to leave. And his doppelganger turned back to Robin and said, meet me at the Twisted Root and I will tell you all about this tomorrow. 
Robin doesn't know what to do. He walks home. He's like, I, I really want to know who this person is. But if he goes, then he may jeopardize everything that he's had at Oxford. Babel is a book for anyone who loves languages, who loves linguistics, who are fascinated by words, by meanings, by etymology, by how words come from other words and how their meaning changes and evolves throughout time. Babel is for anyone who loves like the idea of translation, you know, making words available to others through translation and the power and that magic of translation, or maybe even just the theory of translation. What is the right thing to do when you're translating a word? Should you translate it word by word, or should you just try to capture the, the gist of it, the meaning of it, to capture the sense that the author is trying to convey? Babel is also a book, of course, for people who love the academic life. If you won't ever want to be a career student, that you just want to spend your life learning and learning and learning some more, this is a book for you. But Babel is so much more because this is also very much a book about colonialism, about imperialism, about how there are people out there that empire out there who believes so much in their right to take and take and take away from others, to believe that there are other races that don't deserve to be treated as humans, that they believe in so much in their superiority that they cannot see how the things that they do can be anything but beneficial to these inferior people. It's also about the people that have been colonized and that complicated relationship with the colonizers. When we hear Robin, who is trying to adjust to the life in England, every time when thoughts of Chinese pop into his mind, he will squash them because he did not want to be Chinese anymore. He wants so much to belong. And he has been indoctrinated to think that, yes, I am indeed inferior. Yes, I should do everything that my savior asked me to because I am indebted to them. That relationship is captured so well in this book. You know, translation that professors like to argue is always about distortion. It's, it's, it's inevitable. And so the question is not about whether it should be distorted or not, but is that how do you do it out of deliberation? I.e., how do you take advantage of all these other people, of their languages, of their resources? How do we take them and make it our own? When we're talking about tropes for dark academia, one of the things that Ara Kwang said in, in one of the interviews is that in dark academia book, it's always a desire on a part, just like what we talked about earlier, of a protagonist who's usually an outsider, who want to be part of that inner elite, who want to be part of the club. And I think Arakwan raised that a little bit by putting in four characters, or at least well, three of them, I should say, probably, that are that are people of color who are trying to understand, who are trying so much to belong, even after they see all the issues, even after they see all the, the problems of this institution, they still want so much to just to belong. So I I have so many thoughts about this book, as you can tell, trying to process all of this. Um, but I think this is a book that really should be read by anyone who loves 
all the things that I talked about earlier and especially give you just want to see what this like I, I can't wait to see what this offer does next because it's just amazing how amazingly different this is from the poppy war but also just just as thought-provoking so again please pick this book up it came out this week it is Babel and I will not repeat that very very long title but Babel by R.F. Kuang all right that was that was a really cool one and a really I think unique in a lot of I don't usually think of translation even though it features heavily in a lot of dark academia works um, I don't think it's really gone into much beyond just like ooh, there's some Greek philosophy that we can pull out and sort of talk about but actually talking about like the both the academics behind it the power structures and then sort of like bringing that back into the general world and stuff that's really really cool so my book this week I think there is an element of imperialism that it sort of pokes at and i can kind of talk about it a little bit later but it's one of those ones where the threads almost feel like they're being put there for the author to expand on more later because this particular book honestly just feels like a very very long prologue to (laughs) whatever is going to happen next so for my pick this week I decided to go with the viral TikTok sensation and previously self-published fan favorite, The Atlas Six by Olive Blake. The byline for this one is, knowledge is carnage, which is a great sentence, just in general, and definitely made me want to grab it. So this is not Blake's first published work, but it is her first to garner some really immediate attention. This is interesting because it's a book that had people scrambling over themselves to kind of like offer her a publishing deal, which is so strange because, I mean, you don't usually get to know whether a book is going to be so well-loved before it's published. But with this, because of its history, it was already like a well-reviewed, well-loved, like bestseller even before that. For those of you who might run in the circles of self-published series, it almost kind of reminded me of the All for the Game series, which is not one that I would recommend to anybody, despite the fact that I enjoyed it quite a bit. Also known as sometimes the Foxhole Court. But if a series like that were ever to kind of decide to go legitimate, it seems like it would kind of come out like the Atlas Six, with the exception that the Atlas Six has actually been edited versus some of the other stuff that I've seen that maybe could have used a second set of eyes. It was brought to my attention when a friend of mine actually started a conversation by going, have you read this? Have you read this yet? It's up your alley, but I didn't like it as much as TikTok made me think I would. (laughs) So we were starting out with a glowing review. So what is the Atlas Six about? Well, it's a world full of magic. Magic is kind of an ability that can grow and develop in most people in this world. So it's a, it's sort of a mundane force, but very few people actually understand it. It's a world that in many ways has kind of taken it for granted. There are those that want to find answers to the questions that magic has sort of presented them with, but they also know that these answers might already be hidden away somewhere because this is not just a world full of magic, 
but a world full of secret societies, which may be a little bit different (laughs) than the secret societies of Yale, which we do know exist. These are definitely secret societies that are devoted to actually understanding magic. It's sort of almost like a competitive thing. Like they are kind of clubs that are going against each other to try and figure out the most. So I I guess it's a little fraternity-esque as well. One such society, the Alexandrian Society, is one of the best in the world. So the name comes, as you might expect, from the Library of Alexandria, which was a collection of tomes that were preserved from the arson of the original library. Once in a decade, six promising musicians undergo an initiation into the society, but only five will be accepted and the sixth will be eliminated. So to make the cut, these magicians are going to have to contribute to the body of knowledge about the nature of magic and the powers that they possess. And to do this, they're going to be allowed into the library and archives, which is actually a character in and of itself to request these books. The requests are frequently denied because of how precious the knowledge is. So this is a world in which knowledge is something that is not guaranteed, even if it is out there, which I think is actually where a lot of the the things that point towards, I guess, like the question of colonialism and imperialism come in, because it's very much a book that is willing to grasp and kind of grapple with that concept that very like imperialist concept that not everyone is entitled to knowledge, that if you give knowledge to the wrong people, then it can be used for the wrong reasons as opposed to anybody should be able to attain the knowledge that they want. It's like a very practical paywall almost, not paywall because you can't really, I guess, get around it that way. But um, there's definitely, there's no open access manifesto in this world. These these characters are trying very hard to get at some of the um, the tomes, and it's it's just kind of denied to them. So it's a struggle between all the characters to be the most industrious, the most intelligent, the most creative, all in order to become one of those powerful and wealthy members of the Alexandrian society. The cast of characters reflect that. If I were to use Harry Potter terms, I think it's a bunch of Slytherins. And they have very different powers, and they have powers that they don't even really know the extent of. So for our characters, because when I say that this is sort of like a prologue to the other books, it's a very character-driven piece. And this is another one of those books where I think it's so divisive because if you you don't like the style and you don't like those characters, you are in for just a slog. But if you do like the characters, then it's a great time. So it's one of those ones that's kind of, it's kind of hard because it depends on, I guess, like your own tastes but really, really is a character piece and is just heavy, heavy setting up the dynamics between all of these people. So first we have Libby. She's a high-strung and opinionated individual. She has the ability to bend matter to her own will. So she works hard for everything she has. She fights for what she believes in. And as with most good, uh, I would call this definitely a YA affiliated, even if it's not technically a YA book. <laughs> and so some of the some of the dynamics between the characters kind of, I think, reflect that. So she, above all, hates Nico. Nico is charming and rich and seems to have breezed through life getting everything he wants. So his emotions can affect the world around him 
to a startling degree, kind of like if pathetic fallacy was actually a threat. Like if you're sad, it's not just raining outside, like it's really raining. It's coming down. You've got some acid rain. So that kind of thing, which is pretty interesting because the the magic in the world, there are some that sort of manifest in more physical, like outer outer magics and then some that are more like mental or more in regards to the way that you interact with other people so we've got kind of a mix of those different powers and magics in the different characters we also have tristan with his sort of ladder climbing ambition and a dark shadow from family's criminal past you're i i think everybody wants to be a little bit of a bad boy in this (laughs) it's just which kind of bad boy you want to be if you've seen the old Onion headline, it's an entire department full of, I guess, loose cannon cops, essentially. They they all just want to have some of the same stereotypes in different ways. So Tristan is interesting because he can actually see through illusions. So having a character you can't trick in a group of liars and people who are trying to stab each other in the back makes for a really interesting dynamic. We have Reyna, who's the most powerful of them all, arguably. Her hands kind of have a grip on like life itself. So nature surrounds her. It seeks her out to the point that she kind of shies away from it. And honestly, she's kind of relatable because mostly she just wants to be there for access to the books. She's probably the least interested in actually competing for this. And then we have Parissa, who's a telepath, master manipulator. She's really the femme fatale character who's kind of weaponized it into a little bit of a honeypot for those who like heists and crime novels. She wants to have control over things. And so she uses kind of her beauty and things to do that. And then lastly, we have Callum, who's legitimately a little bit terrifying because not only can he sense your emotions, he can crank the dial on them. So you can turn a little bit of annoyance into seething rage. And so he's there kind of to be entertained. And if this whole story has sounded a little bit like Big Brother or like reality TV, Callum is there to make that prediction come true. He's going to make all of these things a bigger deal than they should be. So a lot of different dark academia hallmarks. You've got intrigue, you've got affairs, you've got rivalries, alliances, and all of these kind of happen between the multiple characters and then swap around through the book like a big game of chess. But it's chess and it's also a card game and it's all very fluid. And sometimes different plot arcs and different character interactions can be a little bit more of a drag than others, depending on what you're interested in. As I mentioned before, I think it's really a style that you're either going to love or hate. It is incredibly dialogue heavy. The main characters are all stuck together and they have like a really limited ability to leave and actually affect the world. And this takes like a pretty big turn near the end where the world really opens. But really most of this book is just just leading up to the action. There are conversations that span pages and they really talk like teenagers (laughs) in the sense that one paragraph has them like talking about interpersonal teen drama, almost it feels like. And then in the next, they're spouting like incredibly pretentious philosophical musings. So I say this because it reminds me of the way that teens can kind of mix the mundane with almost like scathing countercultural understanding of how the world works. And they can exist at the same time. And they absolutely do with these characters. So I, I guess it depends how much you like talking to pretentious teenagers, because that's what this book is going to feel like. 
despite the world having like magic in every corner of it, it's since it's not really fully understood, uh, most of the plot is actually them experimenting with the extent of their powers. So again, trapped in a very specific place with a group of really weird people. You're trying to figure out things because the whole goal is that you have to bring more knowledge to it. And I thought that was actually really interesting because you got to see them approach these science experiments um, that invite the characters to explore themselves because the magic is, of course, inherently sort of coming from themselves. So if you don't like the the writing style, then it can be a little bit of an issue. But if you do like the characters and the style, like I can see why it has a big fan following and has kind of become a little bit of like a cult classic, because if you can connect with it, there is a lot there to love with that really sort of central question about who should be allowed to use and obtain knowledge and what you have to go through and what is ethical, I guess, in the pursuit of science is another big question in it, just because there's an emphasis on the fact that these people are having to do whatever they can to gain this power. And so if you take that that dark academia trope that we've already talked about, about um, outsiders trying to gain access, these are essentially six outsiders trying to gain access and so the the atlas from the title is actually their um mentor figure so there are a few people who kind of represent the insular secret society they're trying to get into but for the most part it is yeah it is people who don't quite know what world they're about to get themselves into until towards the end and so i'm interested to see where the next book goes see if it's worth all of the all of the build-up because um, it's not a short book. It's like almost 400 pages. So 400 pages of prologue. Up to you. Personally, for me, I like the Raven boys, and so I can handle 400 pages of prologue. So with that thought in mind, I have a question for our book friends. If you could teach any subject, in school, and this could be at any level, could be at a university level, could be at a kindergarten level, whatever you want. If you could teach any subject in school and it doesn't have to currently exist, what subject would you teach? So basically, before I went to library school, I also had the option of going to a master's level degree in sociology. So I would have to say that something related to sociology or social sciences would perhaps be the area I'd be most suited to. Um, in particular, I was interested in social movements and things like that. So that might be this particular sort of subject area. If you're thinking of like an academic subject, probably would be something like that. I don't think I feel necessarily qualified to teach anything, <laughs> which is the problem. Ideally, I want to be one of those like Oxford or Cambridge professors where they have like seminars for the students where they're supposed to come to their office and talk about things very deeply for a while and then just never show up and be busy pursuing my own interests. So that's the type of professor that I'm going to be. I, I don't know. Literature, literature. We'll go with literature. I'll be a liter- literature professor that you never see. I, I don't think uh, being qualified was uh, one of Gabe, part of Gabriel's thing. So I was just going to go whatever. Um, I think same thing. Like I was just thinking about it. Well, but still, I kind of feel like, well, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think I will probably go with um, doing a psychology professor you know, specializing in memory because like I know psychology professor probably has to do a lot of their own research and I'm hoping that that would be something that I get to do because I'm like fascinated by that topic. So yeah, so memory, brain science type kind of psychology. Again, don't know anything about it, but 
I'd love to go with something like really niche, um, but I can't think of anything right now. So I would just say high school art. I would I would like to be a high school art teacher. Not very dark academia. I kind of see myself more as that like fun mentor who maybe the kids feel comfortable coming to when like all of the magical who pits the fan. I think that's a great role for you as someone who has only known high school art classrooms to be the place that you go when you're in a crisis. I I didn't even have to deal with that, but I I definitely went to high school art classrooms when I wasn't even in the class before just to see what was going on. It was a good place to be. So I was hoping for some weird niche topics. Unfortunately, everybody here is uh, not a teacher for a reason, and they know it. So (laughs) I will say what I'm going to teach. I think I would be in the pop culture department, and specifically, I think I would be known for a class on action movies and masculinity in North American culture. So I have seen, I've seen it all. I've seen the John Wicks. I've seen the Mission Impossibles. And I have a lot to say about why we love them (laughs) or hate them and how they serve a very specific purpose in society. So I think I'd have fun or I'd be a Cold War prof. But it'd be the kind of fun Cold War prof that, like, tries to recreate strange dishes from the different, like, decades that the Cold War spanned. Or, like, tried to make you do different, like, I don't know. I I would try to bring experiential history into it, and you would hate me for it, so. Are those, like, spam dishes? Am I, like... Oh, no, not spam. Span. Like, span the different decades. No, no, but I mean, like, dishes, like, literally, like, like, culinary dishes? I suppose not culinary dishes. I was thinking more in terms of like uh, the, the different you can get like old vintage like candies and stuff like that from specific wholesalers. And you can get like <laughs> you can get like junk foods and things like I had a prof that did that um, a little bit. I guess not a prof in high school. Um, and so we would have like decade parties <laughs> and, and it was very cute and kitschy. But I think I would try to do something a little bit more manageable because this would probably have to be a university level course because I can't see a high school letting me teach it, which is too bad because I think that all of the football kids would take my class and then unfortunately be inducted into gender studies. So there's a missed opportunity. This just in, university professor poisons their entire classroom with Soviet era candy. Mm-hmm, made in Chernobyl. Um all right. I think that leaves it. Kareen. Kareen, what do you have for us this week? You shouldn't be the one to end this. Maybe like Virginia, if you go in and kind of like swap some things around because um, I am going to try to talk neutrally and factually about the book that I chose. Yes. So you have probably heard Catherine House, the college or university or think tank that was featured on 60 Minutes, or maybe you watched the Shiner Report or the subsequent trials about the plasm that was developed on campus that seemingly has a 
pseudoscientific ability to heal or make whole anything that it touches. Perhaps you have heard about their cult-like refutation, where you are inducted into the school, leaving your life behind. And they really mean leaving your entire previous life behind. You are allowed to bring nothing from the outside onto the campus of Catherine House. That means you leave behind your clothes, your pictures, any personal mementos. And for the three years that you are on campus, you are not allowed to contact family, friends, acquaintances. You're not allowed to eat food from the outside. You are not allowed to listen to music from the outside. You are not even allowed to talk about your life before you step foot on the Catherine House campus. The person who you were before is done. And under the leadership of the mysterious Victoria, at Catherine House, you will be reborn. You've probably heard about Catherine House from the two presidents that went onto its campus or the numerous Nobel Prize winners in science, literature, and the other ones. Any time that you hear of someone famous, they probably spent three years at Catherine House. And why wouldn't you want to go there? You have the chance of a glorious future. Your prospects, if you graduate, are endless. And what's more, practically speaking, is that everything is paid for. There's no tuition. You don't pay for food. You don't pay for clothing. You don't pay for alcohol. Everything is provided to you. But of course, because this is dark academia, the question is, at what cost? Into this mysterious, but obviously not sketchy at all, campus comes Inez, who has come to the school to escape. So unlike one of the tropes of the dark academia, where someone is really wanting to fit into this campus and to belong and to really like be amongst their peers, Inez could care less. She is there to escape from something bad that she did and only kind of got into the school because her high school chemistry teacher recommended that she apply to this school to kind of get away from a bad family situation. She has no intentions of really taking advantage of the, we'll just say classes, but is mostly there to party and drink herself and hook up herself into oblivion. Unfortunately, Catherine House is not going to let you do that. Catherine House is going to wrap its arms around you and send you to the remedial self-regulation classes that you have to go afterwards. Unfortunately, anyone who goes to those classes never returns. Okay. In this cast of characters, there's also Inez's sweet little roommate named Baby, which I hated because no one who's not a baby should be called Baby who adopts a snail and it's a whole thing. Anyways, some of the students who are very high achievers start to work on the plasm, this substance that was developed at Catherine House that on television was demonstrated that if you applied some of it, that it magically mended this entire vase that was broken all by itself. But as Inez gets closer and deeper into the school, she finds that it's full of bad secrets. But the bad secrets are revealed, I would say, like, page 81. So the rest of the book, you're just like, oh, yeah, wait, that's, no kidding, it's a bad school. Why are you here? Why would anyone go here? This is crazy. 
it's a bit of a slow burn, atmospheric, <laughs> meditative novel about life choices and how universities are evil. Very, very evil. But honestly, quite frankly, if someone was paying for my entire tuition, I think I'd be okay with the evilness. Like it was mildly evil. Well, if you're okay with soil and green, then this is fine. Um, so if you are looking for something where you deeply hate the main character and kind of wish that the bad things would happen to her, and if you just want to be deeply on the side of the bad guys, I guess. And you thought that Never Let Me Go could use more descriptions of hangovers, then you should try Catherine House by <laughs> Elizabeth Thomas. And I feel really bad. I was trying to be like neutral and cool about this. And I I don't think I succeeded. Um, I think Elizabeth Thomas is a good writer. Like there are parts of it that are really wonderful. And this is her debut novel. And, you know, she creates vibes. She's good at creating a vibe. But yeah, if you're looking for like characters that you don't want to throw underneath a bridge, then this is not a book for you. But if you want your, your academia like dark and, and bad and like, don't trust the professors and don't trust the university, even though they're giving you free tuition and they're giving you clothes to wear and don't trust plasm and don't go to stupid rituals at night where they hook like things into your forehead and belly. Like that's always bad. That's always bad. Why would you hang around? Oh, just sit still. And let us like attach things to you for free tuition. You know what? Take out a student loan. Like it's not worth it. Um, not for me, but maybe for you is Catherine House. Out of curiosity, would anyone here let someone experiment on them for free tuition? No! Mm -hmm. Yes. Wait, so you would let someone experiment on you or you would do the experimenting? Why do you think I want to be a psychology professor? Anyway. Okay, okay, okay. I will let Virginia experiment on me for free tuition. I, I, I do think that I would consider letting Virginia experiment on me for free tuition. But I also know what Virginia reads. Virginia is like a very well, I would say well-balanced individual, but the stuff that you read is just like is so out of pocket that I don't know if I could like I could trust that when it comes to when it comes to just like an experiment. So the real horror of dark academia is that post-secondary education should be free because the fact that this is even a question that could come up that is the problem. The whole ideas of like class and exclusionary nature are because it costs so much to go to university or college and it should be free. That is the real horror of the genre. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, it, there's also the fact that almost all of it takes place in Ivy League schools, which you have to pay even more to go to. And it's more exorbitant. And supposedly you get a better education there. But as far as I've heard, I don't think that's actually true. So we... Yeah. So, dear listener, if you've ever considered going back to school or perhaps going to school, um, ask yourself, what will you put up with to be able to get free tuition, to be able to accept it, be accepted 
into whatever social group you choose. Perhaps scout out the frats and the sororities beforehand. Figure out how likely the people in this particular sorority are to make you participate in strange rituals. And also, uh, trust no one. Because that's the only way you're getting through it. College parties, a terrifying time. Stay at home. Play D&D like the rest of us. Okay. I hope that you picked up at least a few books that seem interesting to you if you are someone who either loves the idea of school or actually loves school and wants to read more about it for some reason. Then come and add a little bit of mystery, a little bit of suspense, some murder to your studies. All right. That's it for us on Keep It Fictional. Thank you to all of my book friends for joining me, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.